welcome back to the Herbert Smith Freehills M&A podcast series. This is the first in a two-part mini-series focusing on merger control issues that can arise, particularly in cross-border M&A. My name is Sarah Benbow, a partner in the competition regulation and trade team based in Melbourne. And my name's Adelaide Luke, a senior associate in the competition regulation and trade team in Hong Kong. In this episode, we'll look at some of the prevailing trends in merger control that we are seeing in Australia and in the rest of the Asia-Pacific region. We're then going to think about some of the more common questions that crop up in the cross-border context and how merger control plays into the deal timetable. That's right. And next time, we're going to look at gun jumping, which is what can happen when companies get the merger control piece wrong, either through not filing at all or, in some jurisdictions, through taking steps to control or influence a target before clearances have been issued. Yes, that's a very interesting issue, Adelaide, particularly in Australia at the moment, given the ACCC has taken its first action in this area. But first, looking at general trends, I think it's safe to say that merger control, particularly the need to obtain pre-completion clearances in multiple overseas jurisdictions, is often not at the forefront of people's minds when they are thinking about a merger or acquisition. And this is particularly the case for companies operating out of Australia, where it is not mandatory to seek approval from the ACCC prior to completion. But it's something that shouldn't be overlooked because it can have real consequences, not only in the commercial drafting for the deal, but also on the deal timetable. And my understanding is that just recently in the Qualcomm NXP acquisition, we have seen how it can go catastrophically wrong um, when that deal fell apart after not being approved by the Chinese regulator. Um, Adelaide, is this something you can tell us a bit more about? Yes, of course. I think it's important to preface this discussion by saying that the Qualcomm NXP acquisition is definitely the exception and not the norm. But it still acts as a fairly useful reminder to think about the wider context of a transaction particularly when sensitive sectors are involved, like tech or pharmaceuticals. Looking at China in particular, remember that national industrial policy is explicitly mentioned in the law as being relevant to be considered by the regulator. So Qualcomm NXP was a US $47 billion deal that was first announced in late October 2016, and it started to be filed in various jurisdictions in April 2017. Ultimately, it had to be reviewed by nine authorities. Nine seems like a lot, Adelaide. Is that a lot? Not really. A lot of countries have really formulaic thresholds, so it just depends on the footprint of the companies involved. Here, we had companies with very large international presence. So the deal was filed in the EU and US, but also in several Asian jurisdictions, including South Korea, Japan and China. It involved two leading players in a fairly sensitive market, the semiconductor market. So I don't think anyone was surprised when various regulators announced that they would conduct in-depth reviews. But people were very surprised by the outcome in China. The newly formed State Administration for Market Regulation, or SAMR, it used to be MOFCOM, the SAMR ended up being the only one of nine global regulators not to approve the deal. And the deal was actually pulled and resubmitted several times, wasn't it? Yes, twice. Um, To to restart the statutory timelines and give the SAMR more time to consider the deal. But what has sparked the greatest interest is that the SAMR didn't actually block the deal, which it can do. Rather, it simply didn't come to a decision within the relevant timeline. 
And this suggests, I think, that they had expected perhaps that the parties would simply withdraw the filing and resubmit again as they'd already done. But instead, Qualcomm announced that it was walking away from the transaction completely and it paid a hefty break fee to NXP in the process. Well, so while that sounds like a pretty scary outcome, you mentioned that this is the exception and not the norm. But are there any particular trends that you can tell us about in China more generally? And what are the implications of a Chinese filing on the deal timetable? That's a question I think that's often at the front of mind for Australian companies who are looking at filings in China. Yeah, sure. Let's start with a bit of background. In its early days, the Chinese regulator, which is, was, as I mentioned before, was then Mofcom, it earned itself a bit of a bad reputation for being quite unpredictable in its timeline and also in the approach taken when reviewing transactions. Even after the introduction of a simplified procedure in 2014, which covers what we consider to be no-issues mergers, it was stream- still extremely hard to predict how long Mofcom's review was going to take. And why, why is that? The main issue usually arose in what we call the pre-acceptance phase. Formally speaking, this is the initial period of time after a filing is submitted, when the regulator checks that the filing is complete and that there are no deficiencies in the information provided. And this is used in most regimes, not just China. But because MOFCOM's case handlers often struggle to complete the formal review within the fixed time periods prescribed in the legislation, you know, perhaps understandably because it was still quite a young, albeit high-profile regulator, this pre-acceptance phase became an additional amount of time over which the case handlers could ask as many questions or raise as many clarifications as they wanted to. Because the pre-acceptance phase is not formally prescribed for within the legislation or all the procedural rules, there were no time limits on how long this period could last. We often advise clients to be prepared for pre-acceptance to last anywhere up to three months. And has this position now changed? Yes, the regulator has become aware of the timing issue and also perhaps of the growing discontent with the state of affairs generally. And it's gradually began tightening up the approach used even during pre-acceptance. We understand from informal conversations that targets were set for the average amount of time it took to, to complete pre-acceptance, and following that, there was a noticeable sea change in attitude towards timing from within the regulator. Nowadays, for a no-issues merger filed under the simplified procedure, we expect pre-acceptance to last no more than 30 days, and this is comparable to many European regimes. Wow, that's, that's a significant change and a good one, and I know one that many of my clients in Australia will be pleased to hear about. Yes, and in fact, it's important to remember that when a filing is triggered in a cross-border transaction, it's often just a technical filing anyway. Only in a transaction where the parties are substantially overlapping in operations would we consider that a filing is likely to give rise to substantive concerns. So in a technical filing scenario, we think that the impact on timing caused by a Chinese filing is actually relatively contained. Of course, parties won't be able to close upon signing, but since most transactions have a series of CPs to fulfil, the actual impact on a Chinese filing on the deal timetable is, you know, we would hope minimal. That's great to hear, Adelaide. And what about the rest of Asia-Pacific? Are there any other key jurisdictions that our clients should be aware of when thinking about where they may need to file an impact on the deal timetable? Asia is a really interesting area to look at, Sarah, because it's such a patchwork of different regimes. You have the old guard of Japan and Korea and, to some extent, Taiwan. 
and they've had a long history of competition law enforcement and they all operate regimes that are not substantively based on the EU model. Um, We don't often hear about those regimes, Adelaide. What can you tell us about those ones? It's not surprising that these regimes aren't front and centre of people's minds, particularly Japan and Korea, because although both of these have very active and powerful regulators, they're also very heavily focused on regulating their own national markets. We've got to be especially careful with these jurisdictions because their rules aren't based on the European regime. So they've got lots of quirks that are different um, from many of the more familiar countries. And this can really affect the application of the rules, even in the context of merger control. So, for example, when you're assessing a joint venture's turnover, the Korean regime has a concept of affiliates that applies really differently to the concept of control that we're more familiar with. And what about the rest of Asia? Outside the jurisdictions that we've just discussed, we have a whole host of regimes of varying ages across Asia that have mostly adopted an EU-esque model of competition law, but each with its own special nuances and differences. Some of the more mature jurisdictions include, of course, China, and then you have Singapore, which operates a voluntary regime much like Australia, and Indonesia, which operates a post-closing notification system. Many of the younger regimes are in the Southeast Asia region, where some of the jurisdictions have new regimes that are barely operational or have very old ones that are not actively enforced but are in the process of introducing new legislation. So, for example, Thailand passed a new competition law in October last year and Vietnam has a new law coming into force towards the middle of next year. One particularly interesting jurisdiction is the Philippines, which has a very young regime but an extremely active and aggressive regulator that's been making headlines since its inception. Oh, really? What's, what's happening in the Philippines? Well, in its very early days, the regulator published some interim procedural rules that basically stated that any transactions that were notified in a specified form would be deemed approved until more detailed procedural guidelines were finalised. So during this period, one of the transactions that had been notified was the acquisition by the top two players in the mobile telecoms markets of the assets of the third player, leaving the market an effective duopoly. Bearing in mind that the mobile telecoms industry in the Philippines has long been accused of having issues of poor service quality and high prices, this was obviously not a desirable outcome for the regulator. And so they retroactively tried to commence an investigation into this, despite the transaction already being deemed approved under the interim rules. The parties eventually successfully obtained a restraining order from the court to keep the regulator from trying to investigate further, but the regulators continued to speak out against the transaction. I mean, looking forward, it's certainly one to watch out for in the region. So, Sarah, moving down under, are there any developments or trends you're seeing in terms of the ACCC's review of mergers? Yes, um, absolutely, Adelaide. Thank you. I think, first of all, it's worth noting that there have been some changes in the options that are available to companies seeking merger clearance in Australia. There used to be three options available for merger clearance. The most common option was to seek informal clearance from the ACCC. This process is not actually 
uh, governed by the law. It's actually governed by the ACCC's own procedural guidelines. The test that the ACCC applies for informal clearance is whether the deal would be likely to substantially lessen competition in a market in Australia. That test is set by the law. Um, deals that do not raise competition concerns can be approved under a phase one review by the ACCC that usually takes between four to 12 weeks, depending on the complexity of the issues raised by the transaction. Deals that raise competition concerns can be subject to a second phase of informal review, which can be anywhere between six to 12 weeks or even longer. At the end of the informal process, the ACCC will issue the parties with a letter stating that they will not seek to oppose the deal if it proceeds, i.e. they'll give clearance, or by stating that they will seek to block the deal if it proceeds by opposing it in the federal court. This informal clearance process remains unchanged. However, merger parties used to also have two formal statutory processes that they could consider. There was a formal clearance route which, like the informal route, was subject to a substantial lessening of competition test. However, the formal clearance route um, had a two-month time limit prescribed by the law and more onerous procedural requirements. This formal process was actually never used by any merger parties. The second formal route that was available to parties was to seek authorisation for a merger directly from the Australian Competition Tribunal on public benefits grounds. And essentially that was that the deal raised public benefits that outweighed any detriments, including competitive harm. This route allowed the parties to effectively bypass the ACCC as the decision maker because they could go straight to the Competition Tribunal. It was an option that was used successfully for a number of high-profile and complex deals, including the most recently um, completed Tabcorp TATS merger, which was opposed by the ACCC but approved by the Competition Tribunal. So there were changes to the law that occurred late last year, which actually merged the two old formal processes into a single process whereby the ACCC is now the primary decision maker for both. Under this single formal process, the ACCC can grant clearance under the substantial lessening of competition test, or it can grant authorisation on public benefits grounds. And parties then have the option of appealing the decision of the ACCC to the Australian Competition Tribunal. So, Sarah, what do you think the significance of this change is for merger clearance in Australia? Well, in practice, I think most transactions are still likely to choose the informal clearance process rather than considering the formal clearance or authorisation route. The informal process remains attractive for its flexibility and for the fact that for non-complex transactions, clearance can be obtained relatively quickly. However, for complex deals that raise public benefits or where the parties are looking for timing certainty, the new formal process may be something that they consider. And Sarah, what about the ACCC's approach to its review of mergers? Are there any trends that we should be aware of? Yes, definitely. I think one thing to be aware of is that the ACCC foreshadowed last year that it would be taking a tougher approach to evidence gathering in complex and contentious merger cases. The ACCC had publicly stated that their poor record in opposing mergers before the court and tribunal meant that they needed to change their approach to evidence gathering in complex and contentious cases. They sought advice on this from overseas competition regulators, including the Department of Justice in the US, 
And as a consequence, they've decided to adopt a much more wide-ranging approach to gathering evidence, really relying on their compulsory information-gathering powers. And at that time, they foreshadowed that they expected complex and contentious deals would take them longer to review. Mm, And have you seen this playing out in practice? Definitely. We've seen the ACCC in the last year increasingly using its powers under Section 155 of the Competition and Consumer Act, which allows it to request documents, force companies to provide written responses to questions, and also allows them to orally examine individuals under oath. And this includes company executives, managers and stakeholders who may be able to give them information on the merger or the competitive dynamics of the market. Um, In the last financial year, the ACCC's use of these notices has more than doubled. They used 89 compulsory information gathering notices last year compared with 44 notices the year before. Mm, That sounds like a real shift in approach. It is, Adelaide. And the chairman of the ACCC has also recently stated that he and his fellow commissioners are themselves becoming increasingly involved in personally reviewing and interpreting the evidence that they're gathering in these types of cases, including personally presiding over some of the oral examinations. Oh, wow. So what does this mean for companies looking at a deal that does raise or might raise complex or contentious competition issues? So companies contemplating a merger should always be mindful of document creation, They knowing that the statements and information they include in documents relating to a merger are likely to be reviewed by the ACCC. But they should also be thinking about what the supporting evidence, i.e. not just documents relating to the deal, um, are likely to tell the ACCC. In particular, companies should be alert to the fact that the ACCC will not be taking a narrow review of the deal, but will look at any other related agreements to determine whether they would breach the Competition Consumer Act, either on their own or when combined with the deal. Um, And in this regard, the ACCC has recently launched proceedings against two parties, Pacific National and Horizon, in relation to their proposed merger and also conduct and agreements related to the merger. They've also taken action for gun jumping for the first time, which is cartel conduct prior to completion of a merger against a company called Cryosite. So this is the first time the ACCC has taken action on gun jumping, isn't it? Yes, it is Adelaide, which is why we have decided to cover this development and look at the severe consequences of gun jumping in other jurisdictions in part two of this podcast series on merger control and competition law. Excellent. I look forward to speaking to you then. Thanks, Adelaide. I'm looking forward to part two as well in this M&A podcast series. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.